are back for another episode. I think we're uh, actually on our 10th episode, if I'm not mistaken, Brittany, and I feel like we've accomplished something. Episode 10 is about Brittany. It's about Ariel Castro. Ariel Castro, uh, for those of you not in the know, is the monster from Cleveland who kidnapped three young women uh, between the ages of 14 and 21 and held them captive in his home-turned-prison in Cleveland, Ohio for 10 years and made them more or less uh, his sex slaves in his basement and home. This topic has uh, some conversation about violent sex acts, violence against women, pretty much our standard fair warning that we always shout out to and alert to turn away the little ones. And if you have a weak stomach, probably not the best uh, opportunity to be listening to this. And of course, these are our opinions based on the sources that we have found and the information that is currently out there. These are not, we're not trying to introduce any new information into the case. And we will give credit to our sources at the end of the episode. Absolutely. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, Ariel Castro, living in Cleveland, Ohio, school bus driver, very well known in the neighborhood, a cozy little neighborhood. He lived there for a number of years, had nine siblings, uh, went to high school there, many friends. Um, let's start at the beginning of the how Ariel and, and the first victim came to fruition. So Michelle McKnight, or sh- sorry, Michelle Knight went missing. April 20 or August 20. Oh, my God. <laughs> August I'm gonna, 23rd. I'm going to I'm going to start. Is it 23rd or 21st? I have August 23rd. I think you're and right. And she was 21 years old. All right. Let's go. Let's start back at the okay, beginning. Let's let's actually start back because there's some things that led up to this before he went on his attacks. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he he moved to Cleveland in uh, the 80s, I believe it was. Uh, he is originally from Puerto Rico. He moved from with his mother from Puerto Rico to uh, Reading, Pennsylvania, and then moved from Pennsylvania to Cleveland, where he met his girlfriend. And uh, he and his girlfriend moved in together into the home in Cleveland in 1992. Got it. Much better. Thank you for getting us there. There we go. We're backing up. Oh, my God. Uh, And as you said, he was he was well known in the community. He was a school bus driver. He was well liked. That was kind of a sleepy little neighborhood in Cleveland. Uh, And he was a musician. He played in a jazz band and also played the electric bass at local clubs and was well liked and well known kind of in that music scene and was a standard staple. He would go around to bars and clubs and play and dance with women and was well liked in that area. Absolutely. He was a member of the church. He was friends with most of the families in the neighborhood um, and they knew him well. So, um, you know, as far as everyone in the neighborhood was concerned, he was an upstanding citizen. His violence, though, started early, well before anyone knew against his girlfriend. Uh, He, uh, on multiple occasions, uh, beat his girlfriend, uh, broke her nose, her ribs, her arms. At one point, he hit her so hard that she got a blood clot on her brain that then grew into a benign tumor. Uh, He was charged with battery against her, but all charges were dropped. So he was living without criminal charges, despite exhibiting extremely violent behavior well before his other crimes started. Yes, agreed. The other thing that I think is interesting about him is that he was actually fired from being a bus driver because he made a bad judgment. Oh, uh, I don't remember reading about this. Yeah, okay. including making a, an illegal U-turn with children on his bus, <laughs> which... That is a bad judgment. I guess. I mean, is it in Cleveland? Like, if there's nobody coming, you know, okay, whatever. Yeah, but you're 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 driving a bus you're a huge target you've got kids you you oh wait wait. break the law it gets better it gets better yeah there's more he also used his bus to go grocery shopping (laughs) he uh he left the child in the bus while he went out (laughs) went out for lunch (laughs) and then he left the bus unattended while he took a nap at home oh my (laughs) god wait kids inside the bus it doesn't say. I hope not. But I'm assuming so, because otherwise he's just parking a bus, which isn't really a big well, deal. Well, all right. 
I don't know. <laughs> I remember growing up seeing buses, school buses in the most random places, <laughs> like including outside people's homes just parked. So I don't. I don't think it's actually the most out there landish idea that someone would be like, hey, you know what? I have two hours before I have to go on my next route. I'm not going to go back to the station and just sit down. I'm going to go I home. I never and really rode the bus to school, so I don't um, appreciate the bus uh, syndrome. But I kind of feel like if I did ride the bus to school, it would be like 16 Candles where, you know, you kind of get on the bus and there's all these like all different kinds of people. Uh -huh. And just it's, you know, it's terrorizing the whole time you're there. I had a. <laughs> I had a unique experience riding the bus, and I'm going to just leave it at that. Oh. But on the in the occasion that I did ride the normal school bus, uh, it was exactly like that. Like, you had, it was always like uh, the cool kids hung out in the back, and you had to be almost like invited to go to the back of the bus. <laughs> Unless you were like you were really ballsy and you just did it, you were either one ostracized or told to get out because you didn't belong there or you were embraced for having so many guts just to go for it and do it. Oh, my and God. it was almost like assigned seats from what I remember. Like so you everyone sat in the same spot every single time and they had bus buddies. Well, all of that's because it's so scary to do anything outside of, you know, what you're used to. I mean, I, 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 I. anywho, uh, so let's jump into our case here. Um, on one fine day, August 23rd, <laughs> not a fine day at all, not a fine day for uh, dear old Michelle Knight, who um, was a 21 year old at the time on August 23rd, 2002. Um, she was leaving a cousin's house and she was walking down the street. Now, let's talk a little bit about Michelle, because she had had some challenges um, and 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 in a tough life, I have to say, I um I really felt for her. I think um she was known as Shorty because she was a a pretty little person, uh, short per se. She had actually gotten raped when she was I think probably sixteen or seventeen, and that's actually how she had her first child. And um, she had a son. Um, she lived with a family who, you know, it appeared didn't really care if she was there or not. Um, it was a tough upbringing. She didn't have a lot of, of things and she certainly didn't have, um, you know, challenge challenges in just in general, just getting food on a daily basis um, and living the life that, you know, would be comfortable and normal for a normal teenager. She, I think, if I'm not mistaken, was on her way to actually go to a court hearing to try to get her son back because they had taken him away from her. The Department of Services had determined that she was unfit for a time. I think it was supposed to be the next day is what I Maybe. Had. Uh Yeah, so I think that her son had been moved into foster care because, mm -hmm. like you said, she was deemed unfit. And... I couldn't find a whole lot of information on Michelle, and I'll talk about that towards the end also, but there's, what I did here is that, what I read is that she had some mental issues, and I, I'm not using that to be derogatory, but the reason I use, I phrase it that way is because what I couldn't distinguish is if it meant that she may have been cognitively impaired or if she maybe had some psychological issues, but the way I interpreted it is that there was something not quite firing exactly as it was supposed to be with Michelle. Well, I think that's typical of predators, you know, is they're always looking for people who have, um, you know, some diminished capacity or if they are, um, you know, just in general, um, not able to defend themselves or protect themselves or have the confidence that, you know, some others might have. And that's that's exactly what they look for. And from what I understand, Ariel Castro has spent a quite a bit of time figuring out you know, who his victims would be and then following them and researching it. And he made sure that he was at the right place at the right time to meet with these people, to get their attention, to gain their trust and to actually get them in his to his vehicle, which he did three times with ease. Right. But these were also people that knew Ariel, maybe not well, but at least peripherally, because Ariel had four kids with his girlfriend I don't think all four of those were biologically his. I think only one or two were, but all three of his victims knew at least one of his kids. So even though they may not have known him well, 
they at least recognized him and he was a friendly, familiar face. Right, exactly. Which makes perfect sense that, you know, someone who was the father of your friend, you know, you would likely automatically trust them when you saw them. And especially because he's a school bus driver. So he's with kids all day. I mean, he's established that, you know, in the in the neighborhood or in the community, he, for all practical purposes, should be someone, you know, who you could trust. I would even go so far to say that I think if I recall when I was young, our school bus driver was also our truancy officer or some other officer at the school. Really? So they were a person that we would actually turn to if there were actual issues sure. as well. So that's why, again, establishing this trust relationship with him. So we've got Michelle Knight, 21 years old. Um, unfortunately, it, it doesn't appear that anyone really cared if she was, you know, around or not. Nobody really noticed if she was missing. She was 21 when she went missing. And um, because she was not a minor, uh, it, no one even was really sure if she was missing or she just left because she was upset at losing custody of her son. Yeah, and that would come back much later to haunt the police department and detectives because even when she was reported missing, it was really largely ignored because she was an adult. She could do whatever she wanted. Yeah, and she was, and she didn't have anyone advocating for her like no. um, the other girls that we'll talk about a little later right. did. You know, their families were vigilant um, all the way to when they were found. So, um, you know, interesting. You know, as we talk about the case in all three of them. So, I want to ask you about Michelle. Did uh, the only information that I found about Michelle about her family was about her grandmother. Did you see anything about any parents or other immediate relatives? I did not. And I got my information about Michelle's family from the Robin Roberts documentary that I watched. Okay. Uh -huh. And when yep. they interviewed Michelle's grandparents, or grandmother, grandmother per se. Right. And, um, you know, they never talked about Michelle's parents. And if I'm not mistaken, Michelle disowned her family when it was all over. So that's even, how I took it too. Even, well, the grandmother said that, right. you know, outright was that she was really sad that Michelle would go to the links that she did to distance herself from them. Right. So that in and of itself is really sad. And, um, you know, she was for all practical purposes, an adult when she was taken. She was, she was, she was 21. She was legally an adult, but I, I, I understand where her grandmother's coming from, and it would be very hard to, to completely give up on your family. But I, I kind of got the impression Michelle was from possibly a less desirable part of Cleveland. Yes. And so her, her as, as we said, her disappearance went largely ignored, but there also weren't her grandmother or other family members weren't out there in the press or on the streets actively searching for her and looking for her. And I wouldn't be surprised if Michelle felt betrayed by that. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, um, Michelle is obviously gets in the car with Ariel. He stops. He asks if she wants a ride. Ariel Castro, I think driving a Suburban, uh, asks if she would like a ride. She gets in the car with him and they proceed to go to his house, which, again, this is not out of the norm for Michelle because, you know, Ariel has a daughter who is, you know, known to Michelle. And it's not surprising, you know, that Ariel would occasionally tell girls who, who brought over um, the other two girls as well. He'll tell them that his daughter's there and do they want to come over and talk to her and see her so again none of this is out of the ordinary it's a small community mm -hmm. it's it's pretty surprising you know that they a person like ariel who they knew for so long would you know sort of jump to this next stage of his life and in, in kidnapping these girls so he brings michelle in and michelle's I will I will say a lot of the information that I got I thought was really interesting was um, directly from Michelle's mouth as well as from later. We'll talk about Amanda and Gina, but they all wrote books. Mm -hmm, Amanda right. and Gina wrote books together about the detailed accounts of, of what they went through. Um, Michelle also wrote detail a detailed account of what she went through. I would suggest highly that everyone look these books up and read them. It's unbelievable what these these girls went through at their age and still managed to come out on um, the right side of this and be able to proceed with their lives especially in my opinion because we'll also learn a little later about another victim who actually had a child with ariel right um so again michelle knight goes into the house ariel um essentially brings her in the house and locks her in the basement he chains her up 
Uh, he shuts the door. No one else lived in the house with Ariel. I think his daughter came over occasionally, mm -hmm. but it was a very large house. And if you watch the Robin Roberts documentary, they actually have a scale model of it. And it's interesting because you can see, um, you know, what happened on each of the floors and they talk you through the different areas that they would go through. So he essentially locked Michelle up, uh, torturing her, beating her, raping her um, from August 23rd all the way to April 21st, 2003. And that's when we come upon our next victim, which is Amanda Berry. So once again, Ariel rides up with his Suburban, sees Amanda walking out of Burger King where she's working, you know, Amanda is almost 17 years old. Yep. The, the next day is her 17th birthday. Right. Uh, she thought for a second about getting a ride from someone else. And she, of course, in all the interviews, when she talks about this, this one faithful moment where she decided against it and just got a ride with Ariel, if she wouldn't have done that, her whole life would have changed. Similarly to Michelle's, Ariel takes her to his house. Mm -hmm. And then again, takes her to the basement and locks her up tortures her, chains, the whole nine yards. Now, he takes the girls to the basement, but there's also bedrooms that he set up for them upstairs where each of them technically live for the time that he holds them hostage. Before he took her to the basement, he uh, took her into the house. She was walking around the house trying to find her friend, Ariel's daughter, and she saw... A woman in a bedroom sleeping first she, she heard a noise and kind of like peeked in and saw someone sleeping in there and asked Ariel who that was and he played it off uh, as a friend was staying with him and to not worry about it they then went into another room and Ariel closed the door behind him and took off took down his pants and made Amanda perform a sex act on him. I don't know if it was intercourse. I don't know if she gave him a blowjob. <laughs> I don't know what it was. Now Ariel Castro, in his 50s at the time, mm -hmm, right? 50-whatever. Right. Uh, he was actually only in his 40s at this point. Right, because he held the girls and he... He was in right. his 50s when he was arrested. So he was... I think probably by then, you're right. He was probably about 45. That's roughly what I'm thinking, too. Yep. And a very busy man. You know, he, again, was well known. He played at a lot of events. People would come over to his house and cook with him. He would have people come over on the front porch and hang out in the neighborhood. So these people, most of the time, were in close proximity. The other thing I find interesting about this case, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about the next person, that was that Amanda and Michelle Knight both were picked up in approximately the same area uh-huh a very very close so what was starting to really become evident to the neighborhood was that they had a real problem because they were losing girls year over year in exactly the same location right what i think is really interesting about this um, and this speaks to ariel's ability um to really calculate and to you know choose his moments is that no one saw anybody pick him then no one saw him pick any of these girls up and he obviously picked them up in broad daylight. Right. So I find that interesting that he was so well known. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew what his car looked like. And nobody really saw anything happen. I Yeah, I agree. It was. But at the same time, if no, nobody saw anything happen, but if they also didn't know to look for anything, because if these girls recognized him and got in willingly, they it's probably not if someone did see it. It's not something that would register. It's not something that would register as something abnormal. Yeah, I guess. I guess. I just, uh, I don't know. There's so many nosy people out there in small towns. I'm amazed that somebody well, just Cleveland's not like, a small town. Cleveland's a very big city. Yeah, but in it's, this area, it was a, it was a, it's a smaller neighborhood, yes. but it's within the bigger city. Yeah, but in the neighborhood, I mean, they, they seem to be aware of his comings and goings on a regular basis. I'm surprised that they didn't notice that he would walk two girls into his house. The neighbors didn't notice that. I thought that was interesting. No, and that's true. Uh, Two different times at exactly the same, around the same times where people went missing. Right. No. And three different times, actually, as we talk, start talking about our next victim. Right. And I will say, though, again, though, there's so much happening and coming and going. You're right. There are a lot of people that are nosy, but then there are a lot of people that just keep to themselves and do their own thing. Yeah, still, though, in the neighborhood, when you've got a lot of people sitting on their front porches, I, I, it's, it's just amazing to me and sad that nobody noticed three times. Yeah, I agree. It, it, and what's really sad to me is that 
less that they didn't notice him bringing them in, but more that they didn't notice the weird patterns over the next 10 years. Absolutely. So we've got Amanda Berry, almost 17 years old, picked up by Ariel Castro, walks her in the house, shows her around. Obviously, you know, as you said, you know, rapes her or they takes advantage of her in some way. It's rape regardless. Locks her up. Um, Amanda was well known in the community. Um, her, her family was adamant, um, you know, that she had been obviously taken by someone, that it wasn't just her running away. No. And they fought hard to make sure that she was in the public eye for the entire time that she was missing. Um, it was a big deal for the neighborhood. I think also, and I don't know if they really they really ever thought to connect her with Michelle Knight in the way that they should have. I think the, when they really figured out that they had a problem was when they had two minors. Correct. That uh, were, had gone missing. And again, in the same area, it almost felt like the Michelle had gone unnoticed. I completely agree. I think Michelle, like I said, was largely ignored. It felt like, and to your point, her family, uh, excuse me, Amanda's family fought very, very hard to prove that she was that she was kidnapped and she didn't just run away or that something happened to her. But one of the most fascinating things I found is that at the time in I don't know if it was the entire city of Cleveland, I'm hoping it was just the precinct or that area. There was only one detective dedicated to kidnappings in the entire region. Like I said, I don't know if it's the whole city of Cleveland or Cuyahoga County. I hope not. I hope it's just that precinct. But still, only one person was clearly not enough. So the efforts that probably should have been dedicated weren't dedicated. Mm -hmm. And the one of the most despicable things that Ariel Castro did, in my opinion, was a week after Amanda went missing, he took her cell phone and called her parents. Yes. And called her parents and told them that Amanda is safe, but she ran away to get married and she only wants to be with him now and doesn't want to be with her family anymore. Yeah. At which point her family was like, we know that's not true. That's not our daughter. You are completely full of shit. And yeah. that's when the I think the police really started to get more involved. This was a week later. I have always heard maybe I'm watching too many episodes of Law and Order, but I've always heard that it's like 24 or 48 hours before you can be officially like a missing person or something. This took a week. And I feel like I've also heard that after the first 48 or 72 hours, the chances of someone being found go down the toilet. The, yeah. The, the chances of being found alive are minuscule. And now you've gone seven days without anyone taking this seriously. Here's where I think it's really interesting because, you know, there was a lot of conversations about what happened to Amanda. You know, did she run away? You know, but clearly she didn't run away if someone had her cell phone and called for her and said, you know, she wasn't coming back. And they knew that there was no way that that would be, you know, she would make that decision. Right. So that in and of itself should show them that she was obviously taken. And I would have thought that would have increased the search a bit. I mean, we're talking about a three mile radius where all of this happened and where these girls girls were for 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. No, I know. And I, there are some interesting things that I'm going to mention that uh, Ariel Castro and the community did once Gina DeJesus went missing that I don't know if they did with Amanda, but I would assume such as sending out search parties and holding visuals, vigils and things like that. I agree, though, it's two girls within eight months within a three mile radius. How was there not a bigger presence and search for these girls well also you know just start at the point of where she you know went missing and spread out mm -hmm. and right just go door to door sure i mean but again you know you've got this person in the community who people trust so even if they did go door to door unless they searched his house top to bottom they wouldn't have found anything well yes but again i don't know about amanda and i was going to say this for gina but i might as well mention it now at least with gina Ariel was part of the search party. Right. Which is crazy. I mean, I, it's kind of brilliant on his part. So there's no need to go to door to door when he's the one that's helping out. This is where I, I really hate this guy. And, you know, I uh, will get to the, the, you know, when we talk about the end later and, and the sentencing and, you know, him find, being found guilty or I think he confessed. He did. There was no doubt. No. Um, but, you know, 
I don't think any any death for this guy would have been too too much, honestly. Um, you know the things that he put these girls through. So Amanda Berry, let's, I want to talk a little bit about the forty eight hour rule because I think that that's um, not clear to me, and I think it's unclear to many people across the country because when most people call the police and they report someone missing. The police always state, well, they have to be missing for 48 hours. Right. That's actually not a real thing. Okay. That's not like I said, maybe I'm watching too much 40 or uh, uh, SVU or long order episodes. Well, yeah, well, exactly. And I think that's what we all think. And the police actually say that and they're not actually accurate either. Um, That's not the case. And in a lot of different podcasts I've listened to, they talk about how um, many people are put off. And if you're if your window finding them is 48 hours and you can't report them missing for 48 hours, you have pretty much lost your window. A hundred percent. That's crazy. So Amanda Berry, again, almost 17 years old. She's in the house, tortured, raped, uh, beaten, you know, Michelle Knight there as well. I don't think Amanda and Michelle actually had any contact the first year or two that they were there together. I think the only contact really started after they had been there for a few years. And then of course, during this time, Gina DeJesus was also introduced. That's maybe you might be right. That's not the impression that I got though, because the impression that I got was Ariel's M.O. for all three girls was the same. He would bring them into their house. He would restrain them, would then take them to the basement and keep them uh, chained, arms and legs chained to the basement, chained to a bar or something in the basement. And then after a week, would release them up into the house after what, to me, almost came across as like a Stockholm syndrome. Like he got them to a point where they were no longer going to run or cause a scene and then brought them in to become part of the household. I think that happened a little later. And of course, there was plenty of time for this to happen. Because 10 years later. And I think that started to happen with when... When Gina? When Gina. Uh Uh-huh. Well... Not just with Gina, but when we find later, you know, when essentially Amanda has Ariel's child. Right. That's what opened really, really opened the doors. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about Gina. So Gina de Jesus, um, Georgina de Jesus was also a friend of Ariel's daughter, a very good friend. She, again, walking down the street in the very neighborhood where the other two girls went missing. She was 14 years old. Ariel stops, asks her if she needs a ride. She says, sure. She's friends with, you know, or she's she's friends with his daughter. And he says, you know, hey, we'll stop at the house. You can go see my daughter, Angie. Mm -hmm. Again, brings Gina into the house. Um, They're... I think with some conversations about Gina having some diminished capacity as well. Um, she oh, had taken, I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Again, you know, predators, they look for people who are weak. That's yes. how, those easy are prey. The easiest, you know. And, of course, they, he had an established relationship because of his daughter anyway. So he brings Gina in, same situation. Uh, she comes in. She realizes quickly that things are not going to go well. We go to the basement. Then we go upstairs and get put into the bedroom, a bedroom again for her. Um, what I thought was really and, and I think that commingling again really happened later because of, you know, like I said, what happens with Amanda and Ariel and them actually having a child together. Um, but if I what I understood was that the girls each had their own room. And in that room, that's the only place that they could go. Those rooms were not clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was ter- It was a terrible environment. The door was padlocked from the outside uh, and they didn't have a bathroom to go to. So they had a bucket. That's right. And that bucket would frequently go unchanged for a, a week. week or two. <laughs> right. So it was really terrible conditions. And from what I understand, he would also not allow them to bathe uh, for weeks at a time. And when they did it sounds like they forced he, he forced them to bathe with him. Right, because he presented it as I am giving you this privilege now because I am doing this for you. You have to do this for me. Yeah. I you know, man, I um I would have tried to kill him in this ten years. I don't know if I could have lasted. I would have I I, I get it that they were terrified and and he played them against each other too. Let's be real about this because what he would tell, uh, you know, again, they don't know a lot. They have, they have limited exposure to each other. They probably aren't communicating with each other. Um, you know, they're all of different ages. They do realize that there are other women there and they are concerned. And what he's telling each of them is that he's going to hurt the other or them if they try to escape. Right. And he also 
he didn't completely keep them separated because he wasn't entirely antisocial this entire time either. He would have family and friends and guests come over. And when he did, he would put all of the girls together in the same room and they would be forced to huddle together and stay completely silent. So that way he could have people around the house and then whatever room they were actually placed into, it would be closed and padlocked so that way no one else could go in or see what was happening. And to your point, the girls were threatened with beatings or death should they make any noise or cause uh, call attention to themselves. Yep. So... What I couldn't, what I didn't think could get any worse, actually for me got worse when I found out that Ariel Castro, who was friends with Gina De Jesus's parents yes. and family, again participated in candlelight vigils for her, yep. gave donations to find her, uh-huh. talked to the mother and father and consoled them. You know, it when how would a disgusting human being participated in search parties and at the various vigils volunteered his services to play his bass and play music so people could gather around in the candlelight vigils and pray for Gina around Ariel. How egotistical of him. I mean, he's I can't figure out, I guess, what would be going through his mind because he obviously doesn't he's trying to divert attention from himself, but yet he still wants the spotlight. I I can't. I there are so many things about this I can't wrap my head around. I mean, obviously he took these girls to control them. But then you're, you're right. He still wanted to be this figure in the community, a pillar of the community. He still mm-hmm. wanted to be respected. He still wanted to be social and he wanted to have friends. He really wanted everything. Yes, he did. Now we know that we he had w- issues with women, um control issues. You know, he had gotten in trouble for domestic violence previously. His previous wife had left him with their children because of this. So this is not foreign for him, but the the links that he went to and he was so bold about it i mean being out in public yeah. like that um and you're right you know the the wolf in sheep's clothing right there with the the herd it was crazy that's a great way to put that he was he was taunting them to come look at him but he was presenting it in such a situation where it could never be him. And I feel like it's the classic trope in a lot of TV shows and movies that you hear about where the person who goes out of the way there goes out of their way the most to prove that they're not guilty or they're innocent of whatever is being investigated is usually the one that maybe needs to be investigated the most. Mm hmm. Okay, so we know that Gina de Jesus was taken in 2004. So every year, it, it seems like for three years straight, right. Ariel was grabbing young women and taking them and kidnapping them. Um, again, you know, we talked a little bit about all the things that he was doing to these girls. The details are horrifying, frightening, unspeakable. Um, it, I, at 114, 117, 121, and anybody, no matter any age, of course, having to go through this, it would have been terrible. But to think that a young a young girl or a child, uh, a 14-year-old, would have to think about how to um, operate in a way that would potentially save her life on a daily basis, mm-hmm. you know, being threatened, being, you know, I mean, this, she's probably never had sex before. So this right. is her first, you know, occurrence having sex with someone. So that ruins you for life. You know, and this guy, I don't know if anybody take a look at the pictures of him, but he wasn't exactly, um, you know, a good looking guy. He wasn't guy. Julio Iglesias. No, no, he wasn't. But he was an okay guy. He wasn't, yeah, he, he wasn't. Was, all right. But when you find out about what he did with these girls and things that he made them do and the torture, um, it was really bad. Again, you know, we talked a little bit about the sexual issues, um, you know, him raping them, torturing them, beating them. I mean, just terrible things. I want to touch a little bit on the specific sexual things that happened. So it was rape was a constant thing potentially at times, several times a week for these girls. And Michelle, beginning with Michelle, she indicated that she got pregnant five times Mm -hmm. and all five resulted in miscarriages because once she became pregnant, Ariel would beat her, uh, would beat her in the abdomen to cause a miscarriage. He would punch her. He would hit her with dumbbells in the abdomen and would throw her against walls. And she received the most long-lasting physical abuse or physical results of the, of the abuse because once 
she was free of his captivity, she actually needed facial reconstructive surgery mm -hmm. from the years of being beaten. So she had five miscarriages. Amanda was repeatedly raped yep. and had multiple miscarriages. But as you mentioned before, one of the pregnancies stuck. Yep. And she ultimately gave birth to a child in unspeakable circumstances. Yep. But what I found really fascinating is that Ariel, after going to such great lengths to try and prevent pregnancies and prevent birth, he then switched to wanting this child more than anything in the world and required that Michelle help Amanda give birth. And I think Amanda gave birth in the bathtub and Ariel told Michelle that if anything happens to this child, I'm going to kill you. Yes. And the child was born in unideal situations and Michelle actually had to perform CPR on the child when it was born yep. to keep it alive. The child was actually born in a child's baby pool or okay, there a it pool, is. Yes. a blow-up pool. That's what, what it was. That's said. right. That's right. Um, and yeah, you're right. Michelle was threatened. You know, she had to participate in the birth of this child. She had no medical you know, no. knowledge, nothing like that. Um, but, you know, hey, when your life is threatened, you'll do whatever you can. So and I think there are some things that just come natural in those instances. Um, but she did have to give the child CPR. I think that what happened with Amanda was that Ariel started... And I, I, I think this from the very beginning. I think that Ariel always had his eye on Amanda as his um, wife. I think that he thought that he was building a family there and uh, with Amanda. Because very early on when he called her family and said, you know, she's not coming back. She's going to be here. We're together. It appeared that he had a plan that they sure. were going to, um, you know, be together. She would eventually come around, uh, which is crazy. And, you know, hey, he was going to have a, a little harem there. So, as you said, around 2006, Amanda gives birth right. to Jocelyn. Right. A little girl who had been proven by DNA that this is Ariel Castro's daughter. Um, you know, for me, and I give Amanda a lot of credit for this. She, um, in the documentary I watched, was mm -hmm. so positive in spite of the horrible things that she went through. And it was really apparent that she had to be positive for her daughter. And, you know, everybody, of course, me included, you know, I'm sitting there watching just thinking, good Lord, what is her, what is Ariel Castro's and Amanda's daughter thinking? What's her life going to be like? Mm -hmm. Because by the time, you know, they actually, you know, escaped, this was a six-year-old little girl. Right. And I think that's what led to, you know, their escape was that Ariel started to sort of let down his guard. I think he started to get lulled into the sense of um, false reality that these girls may actually want to be there with him and they weren't going anywhere. He would frequently, um, when she was older, and I shouldn't say frequently because I think it happened four times, but he actually let Jocelyn out into the backyard. Yes. And the neighbors saw her. Right. And when they did, he told them that she was his granddaughter. I actually thought he told them that he she was his girlfriend's daughter, but not his own. That is what he told his own daughter. Got it. He okay. told the neighbors that, that it was, was his granddaughter. granddaughter. Got exactly. it. Okay. Because even his own daughter, when he showed his own daughter a picture right. of Jocelyn on his phone, and his own daughter said, Dad, that looks just like Emily. Yes. Which was his other daughter. His other daughter, right. And he's like, no, no, this is my girlfriend's daughter. You know, this, this she's no, not related mine. to me. Right, right. But um, again, you know, how bold to show pictures. Oh, of, for sure. Of, I mean, what in the, you know, and obviously this plan that this guy had, uh -huh. it's just kind of crazy to me um, that all of this happened. So here we are, you know, moving into what, 2013? Well, before we do that, I want to talk about a couple more things that were integral in Amanda Berry's time there. Because I don't know about you, but she's the one that I found the most information about. She seems to be the most vocal, the one who is the most free in discussing her experience. And while it's extremely traumatic and difficult for her, I think she feels that it's important to share. And a couple things that were very key. Of course, having her daughter was instrumental in her life. So in 2004, shortly after Gina went missing, Gina and Amanda were featured on America's Most Wanted as missing persons, a national TV show, of course, that brought a lot of publicity to the cases. Michelle was still not featured. And I 
kind of feel like Michelle was the forgotten one in all of this. Mm -hmm. Really, who I feel like is the unsung hero in everything, though, is Amanda's mother, because only Michelle's grandmother really seemed to be interested in searching for her. Mm -hmm. Gina's entire family, as they should have, called search parties, had candlelight vigils, were extremely active. But Amanda's mother, almost weekly for three years, was on the news actively searching for her daughter. She then went on the Montel Williams show in 2004, and there was a psychic on the show. This was terrible, by the way. This was heartbreaking. This is awful, and I don't believe in psychics anyway, but this just kind of reinforced my belief. She's on Montel, and she asks the psychic, and I wrote this down because I wanted to make sure I got it right. Amanda's mother asked her what the status of Amanda was, if she was dead or alive. And the psychic told Amanda's mother in no uncertain terms that Amanda was dead, and the vision she had was that she was in water. And this, of course, caused Amanda's mother to break down and start crying and asked, am I ever going to see my daughter again? And the psychic's response was, in heaven. Amanda was watching this show on her black and white TV that she had at Ariel Castro's house. Yeah. She watched this on air live. Yep. It tore her to shreds. Yep. Amanda's mother never gave up hope. And for whatever reason, the stress of it, natural progression of life, she was diagnosed with cancer, and Amanda's mother died in 2006, never giving up hope and actively searching for her daughter the entire time. And that's why I feel like she's kind of the unsung hero of this, because that's a true mother's love, never giving up and always searching and seeking out what is best for her daughter, because she refused to give up hope until her last breath. Yeah, I agree. Now, I want to go back a minute. Okay, because let's do it. Let's talk a little bit about this psychic. Okay. And what a dick move it is. Oh, total dick to move. To tell a mother yes. who's desperately clinging to a, the idea that her daughter may still be alive. And I don't think that's unwarranted. I think she had a great reason to think that. Because sure. somebody, by the way, called her and said, she ran away and she's coming to live with me. Right. And blah, 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 blah. I'm like, are you really? Like, I, nobody, I, I just think that's. Uh, that's absolutely crazy. So at this point, for somebody to be irresponsible enough to tell her that, I, I, I take, you know, I, I take, you know. Um, Great umbrage. I do. This is terrible. It's bullshit. It, thank uh, you. Yeah, it is. Let's I, be honest. L- uh, yeah. Maybe don't say anything if it's not right. positive, because I don't know how that helped this woman. I mean, did the psychic take it upon herself to decide that it's she was going to release this woman of these issues and this the struggle because she was going to tell her that her daughter died? Was she thinking she was going to do her a favor? I, I just, you know, psychics, I think they can be helpful in some times, but it's not because they know secret information or magical information, I think they're just really intuitive. Sure. And in the intuition of that, sure, there probably are things that they they may think of that others don't. But to be irresponsible enough to tell this poor woman that her daughter is dead when she's not. I also read that Castro occasionally took the child out of the house, including to visit his mother. Yes, I read that too. The girl called him daddy. Yep. That This is Jocelyn. Right. Little girl. Um, and Castro's mother, grandmother. That's right. That's what I I read that on Wikipedia also. Didn't Castro's mother think this was weird? Maybe, I suppose. Didn't she know that it wasn't his granddaughter? Well, if... Let's think about it like this. If it's Castro's mother and it's... So if Castro is telling his daughters that this little girl is his girlfriend's daughter but not his daughter... But the daughters largely only have a relationship with their mother and their mother's side of the family. There's probably a good possibility that Castro's mother and his daughters don't ever cross paths. So it's possible that he's maintaining two separate lies with different people. I don't know about that. I, I mean, think I know you're bo- near impossible. I because don't know. even if his ex-wife wasn't, you know, didn't communicate with his, um, you know, his mother, his daughters likely did. I don't know. I kind of got the impression that they... But again, it's not. And if they're... 
if the daughters are largely estranged from him, other than seeing him every once in a while, his, the way I understood it is the when Castro and his family moved to Cleveland, they lived in a very tight knit immigrant community with a lot of people sharing houses together and living in multifamily units because they couldn't afford individual homes. I don't know what the financial situation later was, but if his mother was still in that type of situation and his girls and his ex-wife or ex-girlfriend, I'm not even sure if they were married, if they lived independently on their own, I'd say there's a pretty good chance that they never cross paths. I guess it's just so crazy to me. Like, there, it's just this web um, and, and that he was so successful, you know, at keeping oh, he all was these different successful. pieces ap apart. Uh, okay, so let's skip ahead. So um, let's talk about the escape. Uh, in 2013, you know, now Jocelyn's six years old. Things have gotten a little looser in the house because, uh, to be honest, he Ariel was not very successful at tr um, keeping Jocelyn um, under control. And rightly so, if you've ever been around a child that age, <laughs> near impossible. And uh, he also wanted her to feel like that he was, she was in a normal home. Right. They did things in the house to make her feel like it was normal. She had, you know, they they built, they had a little area that looked like a little school right. area. She would do her schoolwork. Um, they would draw. Amanda would frequently take her on, you know, fantasy field trips per se, where she would walk them through an entire fantasy environment and make Jocelyn feel like that this was normal for her. But, and Gina and Michelle participated in that too because yes. they really felt strongly for this girl and yes. wanted her to have as much of a normal life as she could. Yeah, definitely. And um, and I think that they really held dear to that. And Jocelyn was a big part of the hope for all of them was that they had to get out of there because the thought of something happening to any of those three or all of them and leaving him with Jocelyn seemed to be horrifying, even though many people will say that, you know, he really his the people who saw him with his granddaughter slash daughter, Jocelyn, you know, he, for they said that he really loved that little girl, I'm, you know, and I believe that he probably did. He probably did. And I think that he softened up and that's what really allowed him to let his guard down. And, and um, you know, that's where things really went awry for him, because on one day, you know, Jocelyn comes to Amanda and tells her, you know, mommy, I saw, you know, daddy leave, you know, and Jocelyn or and Amanda, you know, thank God her immediately, you know, her mind kicks in and says he actually left because very before this, these three girls were unable to to understand or know and confirm whenever Ariel wasn't there anymore. So without them understanding when he was in the house and when he wasn't in the house, they didn't know when they could actually have time to leave or try to escape. And he would also trick them. So he would That's what I was going to bring he up would essentially fake like he was going out of the house and he would leave their doors open. And then when they stuck their head out to check, he would come up and he would beat the snot out of them. Yep. So he was, you know, definitely conditioning them to be scared. And this, I mean, when you've got 10 years of this kind of conditioning, you know, your brain works in a different kind of way and you're constantly protecting yourself. So on this day, once again, when Jocelyn told Amanda, hey, daddy left, um, you know, Amanda acted quickly and she immediately you know, went to her door for the first time, you know, it was actually unlocked and she went out and she realized that, you know, yes, Ariel wasn't there. His car was gone. And she went down to the front door. She was able to open the front door, but there was a storm door right. that she was going to have to get through. And so she was able to squeeze enough room to stick her arm out. And she started waving her arm through the storm door. And here we've got a neighborhood. Here we've got a lot of people sitting on their front porches in the neighborhood. And they see a, a girl's arm, you know, waving around. And this, I, I, you know, all of the girls who were in the house, Michelle, Amanda, Gina, and, and I think Jocelyn was pretty well taken care of, but he was definitely starving the adults. He was making sure that, you know, they knew at every moment that their entire life was dedicated to him because he gave them everything that they needed to survive. Some days he wouldn't feed them at all. On the days that he would feed them, it was usually quite literally McDonald's or Burger King. He ate McDonald's almost every single day, and that's mostly the food that he would give to those girls also. Yep. 
So, you know, again, none of them were in great shape. You know, Amanda was a little girl anyway, so she wasn't terribly big. So they said when they found her, you know, she was probably 80 pounds, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that small. Really little. And um, fortunately, the neighbors acted quickly. They saw this girl's arm. And uh, one of the neighbors who became very famous, (laughs) um, Mr. Charles Ramsey, had some interesting things to say. Uh, His interviews, when he was interviewed with the the press outside of the house, was kind of awesome. It was hilarious. He's uh first off he's got the coolest hair ever. <laughs> uh, he reminds me kind of like this guy in this like blues band who's you know super cool savvy had his white t-shirt on, and uh, I don't I'm not gonna quote this exactly as he did but he was famous for saying that uh, you know he went up to the door and he said he knew something was wrong when some pretty little white girl jumped into a black man's arm. Exactly. Which, what? Was, watching him deliver that line is hilarious. He has some great commentary there. I thought it was really interesting. Um, and and if they're in, just so everybody knows, and you should check it out. Mr. Charles Ramsey went on to his own fame, and uh, and it didn't go so well for him. And he wrote a book about it. And so you know, a lot of things happened to him after he became famous for these interviews. That and so I, that book for for Charles, I think is worth a look in and of itself. We'll give you the name of that book a little later. But um, you know, he became a key figure because he actually was the one who kicked the door, the storm door, in yes. from the outside and allowed Amanda to jump out, and then of course jump into his arms. And she had Jocelyn with her. Yes. So here they are now standing in the street screaming get help get help i'm out i'm free call the police um you know there are actual calls with the 911 operator where amanda's talking to the 911 operator and i would really recommend you listen to that 911 call because it is it's it's uplifting and it's hopeful but it's also tragic to listen to but it, it really filled me like with hope because you could hear the both the joy and the fear because she was so happy to be free but she was so afraid that Castro was going to come back and find her before police could arrive. Well, not just that, but there were two other girls in the house and yes. she knew about that. Right. So she had to convey this message really quickly. Um, it is worth a listen because it's, it's kind of fascinating. But I, I think they did know pretty early on that it was Amanda because Charles knew. And Charles she, knew. Yes. yes. You know, that she definitely com- communicated that. But all this happened really fast. So the police arrive. They, you know, are start talking to Amanda. They're giving her, you know, they're treating her because they don't know, you know, what's going on. The police swarm in, they run inside, they find Michelle and they find Gina. And fortunately, in a matter of what, 30, 30 minutes, you know, they rescued these girls. Very, very quickly, uh, Ariel Castro never made it back to the house within that time. And I think he was picked up within a couple hours later while he was still out running his errands or whatever he was doing while he left the house. Yeah. And I think he was with his brothers at the time, which when they were picked up, they were all three picked up, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's right. They were. Yes. Um, and here... <laughs> It appears that he, his entire family, and no one else except for him realized that any of this was happening. So he's got two brothers with him that are being picked up. His brothers said that they thought that he knew why they were being picked up. They thought that Ariel knew why. Uh And I'm sure he did. But for them, they were completely confused. Right. They had no idea. They're like, what's going on? What's going on? And they look very similar to Ariel. Yes, they do. I mean, when you see them in court, you know, in arraignments, they look terrified. They're like, what in the heck is going on? Who is this guy? And I think that is the moment where everybody realized in the entire community, he is absolutely fooled us there was so much proof against him because one of the things that he did allow was the girls to each of them have a diary Mm -hmm. and amanda was really good about noting how many times each occurrence happened of rape um assault all of the different things she would actually put a note in the corner of each of the pages of her diary and write how many times a day he would rape her and (sighs) this horrifying Of course, but so important because this allowed them to, you know, essentially have more than 977 counts against Ariel. And he pleaded guilty to 937 out of 977. But he was sentenced to life through plus a thousand years. But while during the sentencing, he tried to plead with the judge and he said, I'm not a bad person. I uh, am not a criminal. I have a sickness and I need help. I shouldn't be punished. You need to send me for treatment. Obviously, that's not what happened. And nor should it have. What's even crazier is they found a letter in his house when they were searching it. I mean, they found lots of things. Terrible torture, you know, 
ugh, awful. Torture tools, um, you know, all the evidence mm. was there. It was clear what had happened, and the girls were obviously telling the truth. But they found a letter from Ariel Castro talking about exactly what he had done. And in that letter, and you can find that letter online, he blames the girls. He <gasps> blames the girls for letting it happen because they shouldn't have gotten the car with him, which is so offensive. It was just like Ed Kemper. Yeah, awful. Completely terrible. Wow, yeah. I didn't read that letter. That's awful. Yeah, it's it goes on and on. It <gasps> talks about how he has a problem. He needs help. It was all about him. It was all about, you know, he didn't take any responsibility for anything, and he blamed the girls for it, which is crazy. So let's just paint a quick picture here, a timeline. May 6, 2013 is when the girls were freed and Castro was arrested. He was sentenced, and within a couple of months, on September 3rd, 2013, so within four months of his arrest, even, he hanged himself in prison. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I, I don't think that's good enough. I think that, I mean, sure, put himself out of his misery. I don't think that's fair. No, I agree. I kind of go back to, uh, you know, this is one of those situations where I think that all bets are off when it comes to punishment because of the things that he put these girls through. And, you know, Amanda Berry didn't, you know, get to see his mo her mother again before she <sighs> passed away, yes. which is horrible. And, you know, having a child with this man, you know, and now she's raising this child. And, you know, the father of this child is a person who was her captor. Terrible. Michelle lost custody of her child for whom she was supposed to go to court for the day after she was kidnapped. And her son was adopted by his foster parents. So she never regained custody of her child. And I think she decided it was best that she didn't communicate with him either because of the, the turmoil and the struggle that that would cause. But I feel for Michelle because she wanted to fight for her child before she was kidnapped. And that fight, they, the ability to fight was taken away from her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that's really it. You know, I mean, Ariel Castro, he put himself out of his own misery. I think that... Uh, again, no punishment was too too good for him or too bad. I kind of go back to uh, what's the worst thing that we could have done to this guy, and we should have probably done it 10 times. The girls pretty much are in agreement that they did not want the death penalty for him. They Exactly what you said and how I feel. They wanted him to rot, just like they did. Yeah. And uh, both Gina and Amanda's family spoke at his sentencing those girls specifically did not, but Michelle did. And she said to him, you took 11 years of my life away. I spent 11 years in hell. Now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome what has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. I will live on. You will die a little every day as you think of the 11 years of atrocities that you inflicted on us. I can forgive you, but I will never forget. So I want to give a little credit to all of our, our uh, you know, reference material because we... Before we do that, yes, I want to give just a quick little update on where the women are today. Oh, great. Okay. So uh, Gina and Amanda received honorary high school diplomas from the high schools that they would have graduated from. Uh, one uh, over a million dollars was raised in the name of the three girls to help them get on their feet. Uh, Gina and Amanda returned to uh, live with their families shortly after they were found. But Michelle ultimately stayed with Gina and did not go back home. Mm -hmm. uh, Gina and Amanda are uh, stay close and are friends and communicate regularly. As you mentioned, they wrote a book together. Uh, the, that book is called uh, Hope, a Memoir of Survival in Cleveland. And uh, Michelle wrote a book called Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, A Life Reclaimed, and another one called Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings. And Michelle actually legally changed her name to Lillian Rose Lee. She wants to distance herself from her previous life which I find a little fascinating, but she says that that's part of her coping mechanism. She also has, uh, she got a lot of tattoos that she says are indicators of her past trauma, but that helps her heal and move on. I don't blame her. Good for her. Whatever she needs to do to exactly. get through it, that's fine. 
Sometimes it's better to close the book and just start over. I, I agree. She never, you know, I mean, Michelle never had a great life. I feel she for did. her. She did. I you agree. Know? She, putting it all behind her, you know, there was nothing to go back to. So in that instance, I think, you know, I would probably do the same thing and just plain old start over. Right, right. And then, of course, uh, Castro's home was demolished. And uh, to a lot of fanfare, crowds gathered outside to watch the demolition and cheered loudly as the house came down. Yes, exactly. I uh, I agree with that. I think that in some instances like that, the neighborhood just doesn't want that kind of publicity and they don't want people to uh, come and visit. You know, I agree. I mean, those those kinds of places become tourist attractions. The other shout out I want to give to is Mr. Charles Ramsey and his book which is called Dead Giveaway, The Rescue, <laughs> Hamburgers, White Folks, and Instant Celebrity, What You Saw on TV Doesn't Begin to Tell the Story, which is an incredibly long title for That's a awesome, book. That's awesome, though. <laughs> but I, would, I really want to read that book and just hear all he of this stuff. He is so entertaining to watch. You've got to find the, the interviews with him. I don't know what he's doing, but my hope is that maybe he's an Uber driver somewhere. And he's entertaining <laughs> folks with his commentary. I would love for him to pick me up. I know. Uh, awesome. So our sources, I got my information from uh, CNN Fast Facts, Wikipedia, Biography.com, 2020, and the BBC documentary, The Cleveland Cap Captives, What Really Happened. And I got my source information from the Robin Roberts specialty, which I thought was really great. And um, I really like her. I like her know, a lot. In general, she's just got such a real person. One of the really heartwarming things that I saw was that Amanda or Gina, or maybe both of them, while they were being interviewed by Robin Roberts, said that she gave them hope and inspiration. Yeah. As, because they were watching her go through her struggles yep. while they were going through theirs. And that really warmed my heart. Yeah. And her struggles were that her family was in New Orleans. Yes. Right? Well, that or, they, they weren't, you're right. Her family was in Katrina, uh, suffered through Katrina. Right. And I don't know, but she definitely dealt with cancer also. And I don't know if that was before or after this. I think it was after. It might have been. Okay. Yeah. But, but Robin Roberts has certainly had her own share of struggles. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, and and a really interesting person to watch. I thought yeah, that, that was really, really moving. And I liked it in the interviews with her and the girls, they were able to communicate that. So check out all that information. Check out the uh, the podcasts that are, are interesting about this subject. I listened to the Generation Y podcast about Ariel Castro as well, and I thought it was really interesting. I love those guys, and I love the, the way that they cover um, stories. They definitely have a different approach than you and I do, Brittany. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think anybody who talks about this subject has a lot of things to say about it. Thanks for listening. Take a look. Let's look at our restaurant material and see. Uh, dig a little deeper. Uh, check us out on Twitter at Scarlet Podcast. Shoot us an email, scarlettruecontentpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe and listen. Thanks to all supporters. All right. Later, Scarlettos. Bye, Scarlettos. Bye.